We're used to hearing US-China economic relations discussed in the context of the latest presidential tweet or a summary of Donald Trump's calls with President Xi Jinping. At the most, a broader historical reference might harken back to President Obama or on a good day, China's opening to the West in the late 70s. What if that doesn't go remotely broad enough? What lessons do the 18th and 19th centuries hold for trade relations between China and the West? Can we intuit from the past whether we're in a trade skirmish or a trade war? And by the way, back in the day, a trade war really was a war. Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, economics writer and editor at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. When we talk about China and quote-unquote the West, we need to remember that the West is mostly a proxy for Great Britain, the pre-industrial power of that time. The U.S. was certainly on the scene, but very much in a supporting role. Now that's reversed, but how much has really changed? Reading Stephen Platt's newly published History of the Opium Wars, I'm struck by how similar some of the economic undercurrents are to today. A couple of things that jump out, at least at the start of the book. China restricts, but nevertheless prospers from trade, And there's a foreign merchant class almost begging Western governments, please don't offend China. And we're fortunate to have the author with us on Benchmark. Stephen Platt is a professor of Chinese history at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. The full name of his book is Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age. Steve, welcome to Benchmark and congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So in the broad sweep of history, how much of the back and forth between the U.S. and China resonates with you and why? It resonates deeply. And I think one of the most important things is to think about how it resonates in the Chinese context. I think with all of this talk of trade war today, that has a particular meaning for Americans. But um, in China, I mean, China's modern relations with the West began with a, you know, an absolutely literal trade war, the Opium War, that this is seen as the opening of the modern age, the forcing open of Chinese ports. Um, and for that reason, I think issues of trade negotiations, issues of trade war, tap into far deeper nationalist responses in China than they do in the United States right now. What were the Opium Wars? What did they have to do with trade? Great question. Um, well, from one perspective, I mean, the reason that they are called the Opium Wars, and it's really the first one from 1839 to 1842 that centers on opium. Um, the war was provoked by a Chinese crackdown on British drug dealers um, who had been smuggling opium, which was um, produced in Britain's colony in India, and they were carrying it to the Chinese coast and selling it there. And it was in response to this crackdown that Britain ultimately went to war. So the critics of it called it the Opium War. Um, they charged that Britain was trying to you know, expand the market for drug dealers. 
those who were in favor of the war and sort of the champions of it, they denied that it had anything particular to do with opium. And as they saw it, this was a way of opening China to foreign trade, um, to free trade, ironically, um, free trade at the point of a gun. Up until that point, um, China had restricted Western trade to the one single city of Canton down in the south and just a little tiny compound outside of the city it was the only place where the British and Americans could trade. The opium war forced open five cities along China's coast to foreign trade, again, in hopes that that the British would be able to, and you know, here's where we get modern resonances, in hopes that the British would be able to address their longstanding trade imbalance with China by getting China to buy more British goods um, in these other cities. What happens, though, is, and, and this is why we refer to opium wars, plural, um, that this gets repeated over and over. Um, there's another one by Britain, there's others by, by France and other countries. Um, and these wars, which are trade wars, each one results in the opening of more and more and more um, Chinese ports to foreign trade. Um, and this dream that if they could just get these ports opened, that the Chinese would buy all kinds of British and American goods. Um, the, the, you know, this never really comes true. So the, the war becomes a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and repeats itself over and over. Now, Steve, I know you're a historian and you've intensively studied what happened in the opium wars in the 19th century. But history is important for understanding our world today. And I'm wondering if you substitute the U.S. for the U.K., how would you compare the hand that America has today versus what was held by Britain and the Western powers back in the 1800s? Oh, we have a much stronger hand now. Um, the, the trade was far, far more limited um, in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Back then, the, the trade was extremely important for both sides. Um, Great Britain got all of its tea from China. That was the only place in the world they could buy it. And largely, they were selling cotton goods and they were carrying silver to pay for it. Um, China desperately needed that silver. It had a growing population and the, the silver inflow from Britain helped to, from Britain and America, helped to stabilize the economy. Back then, the emperor of China could sort of posture and imagine that China didn't really need foreign trade. And Confucian scholars uh, were loath to admit that foreign trade was actually necessary for China. Um, they like to talk about how easy it would be to shut it down and just, you know, stop wasting Chinese money on foreign goods. Today, the U.S. and China are so deeply integrated that it's impossible to draw the line exactly where, you know, where U.S. trade gives off it, or where sort of U.S. profits leave off and Chinese profits pick up. You could draw battle lines in the 19th century that you can't draw now, but the basic impulse is still there. It's um, this, I mean, the impulse behind the opium war is the same impulse we have now in the U.S., this, this you know, resentment about Chinese trade practices, about China dictating trade on its own terms, um, about the imbalance, about the Chinese not buying enough American goods, um, so the, the complaints have always been there. Um, back then, they addressed the trade imbalance by, by bringing in opium, which turned out to be the one thing that the Chinese would buy in you know, unlimited amounts. Today, I think the hand of the United States is much stronger vis-a-vis -vis China because China is well aware of how necessary American trade is for it. And there's, there's no way to pretend that they could simply do without U.S. trade. We're the two largest economies in the world and we're deeply intertwined. So in a certain sense, it's far riskier to both sides to be going down the road of trade war threats. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly not going to turn into a literal war like the opium war did. Um, but at the same time, it seems impossible to pick out some way to you know, harm or gain advantage from the other side without harming yourself. Steve, I haven't read 
all of the book, but in the opening chapters, several things jump out at me. You portray a China in the late 17th and early 18th century that benefited enormously from trade with the West, yet imposed tight restrictions that the Western merchants chafed under. And yet, and yet, those Western merchants were absolutely paranoid that their home governments would somehow annoy the Chinese and that window into trade would be shut off. Once again, how does that resonate today? Well, back then, I mean, one of the things that was so remarkable about the Opium War is that you know, there were you know, there was a period of at least 80 years there where Britain already had a military advantage over China and could have gone to war over markets if it had desired to, but they didn't. And part of this was the perception of China's strength. In the late 18th century, China was seen as just impossibly unified, prosperous. It was the largest empire in the world. It had roughly a third of the world's population lived in China then. And the view of Americans and British in the late 18th, early 19th centuries was that um, basically if they were to cause any trouble at all in China, that the emperor could just wave his hand and shut them out of the China trade forever. And they would lose all of their access to tea. Um, they would lose this, you know, really, I mean, for the British Empire, it was really the lifeblood of the empire. It kept in India afloat. So the, the merchants themselves were quite terrified of trying to change anything in China because, again, this, this view of Chinese power. As China began to slide, however, and in the early 19th century, China was weakened by internal forces that again, resonate a lot today. I mean, the, the big ones were, were overpopulation, um, official corruption, um, sectarian dissent, there was a large uprising um, of, the, of the White Lotus sect. These weakened China to a point where the opium war suddenly seemed to be possible. The resonance today, I think, is, again, we're always sort of shifting back and forth between, and, and you know, if you, if you follow the China watchers, either China is this unstoppable juggernaut that's destined to rule the world and we better behave ourselves and watch out, or it's viewed as being on the verge of collapse because of all of its internal problems and internal contradictions. And obviously, both of these can be somewhat true at the same time. And the view from the early 19th century was that even at a time when China seemed immensely powerful, um, there were huge problems within its society, which ultimately the British were able to take advantage of. So was the paranoia among business people that foreign governments would antagonize China justified? In Chapter 3, you cite a prominent director of the East India Company as saying that it was, quote, most advisable to let the government of China alone. Yeah, things generally worked best in that era when relations between China and the West were left to businessmen, the merchants trading with each other. That the actual merchants of Great Britain and America and the Chinese merchants of Canton who traded with them um, had very friendly relations for the most part. That this was actually a very peaceful meeting of civilizations. There wasn't this great sort of clash of civilizations that we think about between China and the West. And when trade was in their hands, it went quite smoothly. Uh, the problems come when, like, when Britain tries to send diplomats over to China to meet with the um, with the emperor, and then they get asked to kowtow, which is this sort of ceremony of kneeling nine times and banging your head on the ground. Um, and the British would refuse to do that, and then ten tensions would arise from that. But whenever problems arose, generally, if the gov if the governments in Beijing and London backed off 
and left things to the merchants of Canton, they would write themselves again. So, I mean, certainly in the 18th and 19th centuries, up to the Opium War, um, the legitimate trade, this, I'm not talking about the smuggling trade here, but the legitimate trade was a real stabilizing force in international affairs. Briefly describe for us, Steve, what the East India Company actually was. And in its heyday, it sounds like it may have resembled Walmart, Apple or Boeing. In essence, was it more powerful and from the Chinese perspective, more relevant than a state? Great question. I mean, I guess it's Walmart with an army, if you want to think about it that way. Um, the East India Company, it was, a, it was a private company with shareholders that paid dividends um, that conquered India. Um, it had its own military. Um, the If you look at the East India Company in India, however, it looks very different than the East India Company in China. In India, that's where the East India Company was, was a force of conquest and control, um, establishing colonies there. In China, they had a small staff, you know, about, about 20 East India Company representatives in Canton. And these were basically just accountants. They were bean counters. They were quiet. They had no visions of empire or conquest. Um, they just wanted to keep track of the tea sales. They essentially were Britain for the Chinese. Um, that the the Chinese government did not want relations with British officials. They wanted the the so-called Taipan, the head of the of the British merchants at Canton, effectively was the representative of the British government, even though the East India Company was a private company. And the point where everything goes wrong in Canton um, is in 1834 when the East India Company. Um, which up until that point had had a monopoly on all British trade to China, um, loses that monopoly in Britain. It's uh, derailed by free trade activists in Great Britain who, who think that the monopoly of the East India Company is stifling the expansion of trade in China. Um, and their arguments succeed. Parliament takes away the East India Company's um, uh, monopoly in China. And starting from 1834 onwards, any British firm that has a ship that it can send to China can get into the tea and the opium trade. Um, and this is where the chaos starts coming in. So as horrible as the East India Company was in India, and I hesitate to say anything good about this company whatsoever, um, it actually served as, as, a, as a stabilizing force in China. And, and the best relations between Britain and China took place through the East India Company and the Chinese merchants of Canton. Steve, let's talk about one of the interesting characters in your book. His name is Lord McCartney, and his mission to Beijing to establish a permanent diplomatic presence ended in failure. The emperor told him China had no need for British manufactured goods. But McCartney succeeded in one area. He saw weaknesses in the regime that others just didn't really tune into. Today, it's fashionable to think of China as kind of a juggernaut that will surpass the U.S. Tell us a little bit about him and, and what you think he might make of China today. Well, Lord McCartney, he was... This um, He was Great Britain's very first ambassador to China. There would only be two of them prior to the Opium War. And in this era, being an ambassador meant that you traveled over to the country and then you came back. Um, he had actually hoped to be able to stay on in Beijing, but the emperor wouldn't let him. Um, he had this, uh, there this famous embassy that was just a miserable failure. Um, they he dithered over ceremony about whether he would perform the kowtow. Um, and he had all kinds of demands for the Chinese government that um, that China should open more ports. Um, I mean, in a certain sense, the Opium War, which came you know, in, in the 1840s, McCartney came in the 1790s. Um, so the Opium War, you know, 40 years later, 
was essentially forcing on China the things that McCartney had asked for in his embassy. Um, you know, they wanted an island offshore that they could use as a warehouse, et cetera, et cetera. But so he was famously dismissed from Beijing. The emperor sent an edict to the king of England saying, we have no need for your country's manufacturers. Please don't bother us anymore. Um, and it was really in his sort of humiliated resentment after this trip that he started writing down everything that he thought was wrong with China. And he had heard reports. I've still not been able to track out exactly, track down exactly where he was getting all his information. But his view is that despite the fact that Westerners saw China as you know, impossibly prosperous um, and powerful, that in fact it was decaying from the inside. At that time, China's government was the Qing dynasty, which um, was ruled by men. Manchus, who were racially different from the Chinese. So the, the vast majority of the population who were Han Chinese were essentially subjects of the Manchus. And as McCartney saw it, he said that you know, a revolution is going to come and the Chinese are going to rise up and overthrow the Manchus. He predicted it would come before his own death, which didn't actually come true. But at the same time, he was the first one to inject um, this sort of uh, note of skepticism about about China's power, that if you look behind the surface, that there's there are actually real problems there. And somebody wrote recently that the China bears in the U.S. have all gone into hiding right now, that China just at this particular moment seems to be such a juggernaut, such an unstoppable juggernaut, um, that its economy is doing so well. It's so con the government is so confident. Xi Jinping, uh, the president, is is consolidating his power so effectively that Again, we're entering into an era of, that, of this vision of China as being unified, powerful, prosperous. But obviously, people who live there and people who give insightful reporting, um, even if they've been somewhat quieted at this time, point out that the government still faces enormous problems there. And again, the root of some of these problems trace right back to the same ones in the 19th century, especially the problem of, of official corruption, um, resentment of people on the ground, of officials who squeeze them for bribes, um, uh, problems of overpopulation, of managing such a huge population um, that these echo again. Steve, you describe a massive pirate insurrection off the Chinese coast that the regime spent many years trying to suppress. When we look at China's efforts to project power into the South China Sea, how much of China's strategic framework has been shaped by that pirate experience? The pirate experience is just part of a much bigger picture, which is China's naval insecurity. So the Qing dynasty, again, this, this, this government of Manchus was really a land power that their biggest wars were fought in Central Asia to conquer territory. And they generally did not maintain an effective navy, largely because after they conquered Taiwan in the 17th century, there was no real threat to them along their coast whatsoever. And in the early 19th century, they were suddenly faced with a new problem, which is this pirate insurrection that you mentioned, and this massive fleet of pirates, you know, larger than the Spanish Armada, um, raiding the coast, conquering territory, um, taxing the populations. And the, the Qing dynasty it, it managed to suppress them 
but quite desperately because their actual naval ships were not capable of fighting these fighting the pirates, these Chinese pirates. So the way China did manage to suppress those pirates, um, they made some improvements to their naval forces, but ultimately they, they relied on amnesty, sort of the promise of a settled life in China. And they told them if they turned themselves in, that they could, some of them would get, they would get commissions in the Chinese Navy. Um, they could live on land peacefully. And ultimately they sort of won them back. Um, this was, you know, th- this is the part of sort of the culture of the empire that China is such a, a desirable place to live and at the center of civilization and prosperity that who would not want to be welcomed back into the fold. So they succeed with the pirates, but then comes the Opium War and just this disastrous mismatch between the British who have the Royal Navy, the most powerful modern naval force in the world, against China, which has a long and vulnerable coastline and no effective navy whatsoever. So the Opium War was a completely one-sided war, um, fought on water for the most part. And it's the memory of this weakness um, that sort of ultimately leads to the rise of naval power today, that China does not very consciously does not want to be pushed around as it had been in the past. Um, and today this is this is taking this is taking place with the you know essentially claiming the entire South China Sea, which you, know, you debate the actual reality of the maps involved as much as we want. Um, the story that's coming from the government is that this is territory that belongs to China, where Chinese sailors used to go all the time, and we must protect it, um, and we must bring it back into the fold. And this chip that's left on the country's shoulder from the opium wars of the 19th century of being bullied by, by Western naval powers um, has sort of come full circle now. And now they have the fleet um, and, you know, the U.S. the U.S. Navy is at this point the only one that can match it in terms of power in the Pacific. Oh, yeah, in the South China Sea. Steve, it sounds like you're saying in terms of explaining the current economic underpinnings of China's economic relationships, the Opium War was at least as important as World War II, the Communist Revolution and Deng's opening to the West. It is. Um, and certainly in the eyes of China's current president, Xi Jinping, you know, the Opium War is sort of the origin point for what he calls China's you know, struggle for national rejuvenation. And in speeches, he refers um, in the past, it was the 170 year struggle. Now it would be the 175 year struggle um, of the Chinese people um, to recover from the Opium War, essentially, the Opium War and everything that it brought, the exploitations of the 19th century. This is something that he has taken a step beyond what earlier um, uh, Chinese leaders have, have grappled with. It wasn't really until the 1920s and 30s in China, in the Republic, that this war became known in Chinese as the Opium War, and that it became a sort of a centerpiece for nationalist education as representing um, the moment when China was dragged kicking and screaming into the world of of imperialism, the moment when China, when sort of the grand old China was laid low by an upstart Western power. And that century of humiliation keeps getting extended. I mean, it went until the Japanese invasion. And then in the early PRC, the, it sort of ended in 1949. And now the PRC came, the, the communists came to power. So we can put that behind us. Um, but Xi Jinping is very much continuing it. 
and his vision, which is so central to um, what he calls the Chinese dream and what his his vision for the future of China is, is that his vision is to recover the greatness that China had prior to the Opium War, to recapture that lost era. And in doing that, it's not just a matter of the economic power of China. It's not just a matter of sort of the respect of China or its influence in Asia. It's also very specifically about China's relationship to the West. And as he sees it, the Opium War was sort of the moment when the Chinese started looking to the West for how you become strong. They look, started looking towards Western models, either um, adopting Western weapons or later on a Western political structure with the Republic. And as he sees it, this is something that, that China will finally get past. And he looks at the world now. He sees that Britain has already declined. Um, he believes that the United States is declining and that the future belongs to China. And so going back to the Opium War and trying to recapture the moment, you know, the era before that is a way of sort of taking a sort of washing away that entire long era where China where China was humiliated before Western power. Steve, really appreciate you joining us. Congratulations on the book and sketching the deep historical context of today's economic relations. Thanks so much for having me. This was really enjoyable. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can also check us out on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest is at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-R-P-L-A-T-T. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.